Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 14th, 2015, and my guest is Bent Flupia, BT professor and chair of major program management at Oxford University's Said Business School. Bent, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. Our topic for today is mega projects, enormous projects involving infrastructure and other types of construction. Uh, let's start, and you, you've done an a great deal of work on on that area. Let's start with just the definition, uh, which is, of course, uh, somewhat subjective. But what is it? What do you mean by a mega project? Well, we usually say uh, any project that costs more than a billion dollars and that affects more than a million people. And what would be some examples? So in the U.S. right now, the largest civil mega project is the California high-speed rail line. That's an example. Uh, before that, there was uh, Boston's Big Dig, also called the Central Artery Tunnel. Uh, that's another example of a mega project. Uh, building a subway in New York City would be an example. Uh, obviously, in the private sector, oil and gas platforms like Deepwater Horizon that blew up in the Mexican Gulf uh, is an example of a mega project. So is the Keystone Pipeline, and they can be private or public. But many of them, of course, uh, are public. They're often the ones that, that get the most attention. They get written about. One of the things that you observed that fascinated me is that over time, uh, mega projects have gotten more mega, and we're not just talking about dollar value, either due to inflation or higher costs. Uh, the bridges are longer and the skyscrapers are taller. Is that correct? That is correct. And and that's a very clear historical trend. Even going back 100, 150, 200 years, you find that and tunnels are getting longer. More recently, if you look at uh, many IT systems, we actually also consider large IT systems, mega projects. They are also growing bigger if you count them by, you know, how many lines of uh, of code is written into a, a program or how many function points, which is a way to measure the science, size of IT uh, programs, uh, how many go into a program, it's also escalating very quickly. And what's remarkable, uh, at least to us to me, is that there is a unfortunate pattern uh, that is um, it, it persists over time and uh, over space, which is that mega projects. Uh, typically don't cost what they are promised to cost, and the benefits are not what they're promised. Uh, talk about some of the empirical regularities that you've discovered. Yeah, it's so regular that we have a name for it. We call the, it the mega projects paradox, and it's the paradox that we have uh, all these uh, uh, mega projects being built more and more and larger and larger, spending more and more money on it as a percentage of global uh, GDP, at the same time, it's very clear that the performance of the projects is dismal, that they're just not doing very well. They, they do not deliver the promised benefits. They uh, cost much more than was originally uh, estimated. They take much longer. Uh, 
there are most many more unhappy people in the wake uh, of uh, projects like that uh, than uh, was said would be the case and so on so it's a very clear pattern and uh, and uh, it is a paradox and it's, it's actually what originally got me interested in this field was that I was wondering had that could this really be, is that really true that we are building something that has, uh, you know, a dismal track record and we do more and more of it? Uh, because it doesn't sound rational uh, when you think about it. Yeah. So in a way, yeah. there's in a way there's two paradoxes, right? One is that the, that it gets built at all. The second is that we keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> any exactly. one of them, any one of them looks uh, like a mistake, and mistakes happen. But that you can continually make them uh, is somewhat surprising. Now, we had uh, Phil Rosenzweig on recently on the program talking about decision making, and we talked about some of the intense preparation and and also the anxiety that comes along when you're bidding on a very large project as a contractor and whether you uh, we talked about the winner's curse that sometimes people will bid on a project overbid win the bid but then lose money on the bid in these projects that's not what's happening the the people if i if i understand it correctly uh, when something like the big dig which is the boston tunnel project happens and there's an enormous Cost overrun due to uh, delays and other factors. Uh, who's a, who ends up paying for that? Well, um, it varies. If it's a public uh, project, obviously it's typically the taxpayer. But I, let me just say that the winner's curse actually does apply to mega projects. That is one of the mechanisms that do happen during the tendering process. But but the problems actually start much earlier than that. So I just wanted to say that the winner's curse is there and it's a contributing factor. But other things are happening as well. So for public projects, it's uh, it's the taxpayer who pays. For private projects, it uh, would be the shareholders if it's a publicly owned uh, project or whoever owns the the company that is doing this. So that's let me start with that puzzle. There are many puzzles here, but one of them is if I tell you that I'm going to build this tunnel for you in a certain length of time and it's going to cost a certain amount of money and it turns out to be wrong, why why am why is the taxpayer on the hook? Why aren't I on the hook? I made a bad estimate. And when it, let's say it a different way. When a contractor comes to my house and he says, I'm going to paint your house for uh, the inside of your house for $2,000, and it ends up taking much longer than the contractor expected, and he comes to me at the end of the project, says, you know, this took so much longer, I'm going to have to charge you four. And I say, well, but you told me two. And sometimes there's a reason that the delay happened that might be my fault. I changed my mind. And then you negotiate. But if I'm a bidder on a tunnel and I say it's going to cost a billion and it ends up costing two, why is that the taxpayer's problem? Well, because um, often, uh, I mean, even if you try to do the painting of your house example, uh, you will know that contractors are very good at coming back with, reason, uh, with reasons for why it's not their fault and why it's uh, something right. else, <laughs> either force, force majeure or actually your fault. Uh, and uh, they will have good reasons to increase the sometimes the, yeah. the, the budget. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> if you're very good at writing contracts, if you're very good at foreseeing what's going to happen, if you're very experienced, you might uh, be able to write fairly watertight contracts that that would put the risk on the contract, and therefore it would not be the taxpayer's problem. But that's typically not what we see. So. Uh, very often public decision makers, policy makers, politicians and so on change their minds or regulations change during the construction period. So uh, typically mega projects like what we're talking about takes between five and 15 years to do. And a lot of things change during that period. 
uh, it's impossible to put all that into a contract because it's unpredictable. Sure. So let's take the channel tunnel between the UK and France. The politicians decided uh, uh, to change the safety standards uh, during construction. So the trains had to be delivered to a higher standard because uh, uh, of certain train accidents that had happened and so on. And obviously, that's not the contractor's uh, fault. And therefore, uh, the increased cost will go straight to uh, whoever uh, is going to pay for the project, right? Of course, if, if it had been the contractor's fault, if the contract was written in a watertight fashion, then uh, the contractor would pick up this risk and would pay for it. That also happens. And you'd think that that would become standard practice. Oh, there's always disputes, but you'd think you'd want to have some kind of clause in there. And for for delays or inefficiency or whatever it is, and of course sometimes a contract will, will reward uh, speed of of achieving the goal sooner than possible. There'll be a bonus, or and of course that's risky. You can incur, that can encourage people to cut corners. And we understand that, but let's talk about the the channel uh, tunnel as an example. Uh, how did that turn out? How did that uh, turn out for the taxpayer and for the for the traveler? So the Channel Tunnel is a 100% private project, so there was no additional cost to taxpayers on that, at least not uh, in any direct way. Um, there was an 80% uh, cost overrun in uh, real terms, so not including inflation, uh, on the construction costs, and there was a 140% uh, cost overrun on the financing cost. Uh, the project was debt financed. And um, therefore, obviously, it, it turned out uh, more than twice as expensive than, than estimated. At the same time, only a fraction of the passengers actually turned up on the service. Originally, only 10% of the predicted uh, Eurostar passengers turned up eventually over many years, growing to about 50%. So this combination of much higher costs, so double cost and half the customers, is obviously bad business. And... Uh, and the tunnel uh, indeed went insolvent and couldn't pay its debts and had to be financially restructured. And the people who lost money here were um, the shareholders. So anybody who had bought uh, shares in Eurotunnel, uh, the organization that is running the Channel Tunnel, and the 257 banks uh, that had uh, lent money to the projects, those were the people who uh, lost money here, not the taxpayers. If it had been a public project, um, then it would have been the taxpayers. And, of course, if a private if a set of private decision makers take their risk and they lose their money, it, that doesn't uh, bother me. I wonder, do you have any uh, feeling for the differences between private and public mega projects in terms of reliability and, uh, and cost versus benefits? Obviously, not every private project is, is – you don't have data on that like you might have for the public – you do have, for example, uh, a systematic study uh, that you did on the Olympics, which uh, you know is public, and and there's they the costs are always <laughs> in the time period that you looked at uh, the costs are always greater than estimated. Uh, do you think there's a difference between the private and the public? That's a very interesting question. We actually have a major study of that that is that we're doing right now. And uh, it's, it's interesting because the general assumption is that the private sector is more effective in delivering mega projects than the, than the public sector. And we just wanted to test that. And uh, the results are not final, uh, but so far uh, the indication is that there is not the difference that people are assuming that it looks like both sectors are struggling with delivering uh, mega projects effectively. 
Um, well, that disturbs so my that disturbs my biases, but it's a comfort because then, now I I might start to think there's a possibility that my uh, depressing uh, that the depressing track record of public uh, is just par for the course. But I look forward to the to when that works complete and maybe we can talk about it. Um, let's talk about the reasons that these projects consistently uh, underperform in terms of costs and benefits. And I think the ratio is is nine out of ten is what you found, right? Yes. Uh, so nine out of ten, what have benefits that are underestimated, costs that are overestimated, and uh, what was the th- and t- and delays? No, it's, it's actually worse than that. Nine out of ten have costs that are underestimated. Uh, nine out of 10 have benefits that are overestimated and nine out of 10 have schedules that are uh, uh, underestimated. So so when you combine those, it's, it's actually a very small fraction of products that both are done to budget, uh, to schedule and deliver the, the promised benefits. And you give, uh, I like your, your, um, cater- your, uh, um, categorizing of the different problems you call them sublimes uh what are the four sublimes that that make mega projects uh so attractive so um the first sublime we call the political sublime and it's the fact that politicians uh, you know love to uh, decide projects like this and they love to cut the ribbons you know uh, <laughs> of projects like this uh, you will find lots of pictures on the internet of uh a politician cutting ribbons with, with the Queen of England. If you were talking about the England, uh, talking about the UK, or or uh, the President of France, if you're talking about France, or or top level politicians in the US. So, so uh, there's something there, there's something sublime about being at a, a, a focal uh, event like that. You know that really gets attention, and. Um, um, Obviously, politicians need to get re-elected, uh, so it's also a way to get in the news. Mega projects really do get in the news for good and for bad. And and, another, and a politician actually once told me very honestly, you know, uh, what do you think, Ben, that I would like to point to when my political career is over, that I pass some law that is sitting on a shelf somewhere in a library, or I can drive across a bridge or <laughs> go into a tunnel and I can tell my grandchildren, I did this. I decided this, you know. That's an example of the the sublime in action. So, so that's the political sublime. Then we have something we call the technological sublime, and uh, that describes the fact that there's nothing engineer, engineers like better and technologists like better than to push the envelope, uh, technologically speaking. So, to make uh, something longer or taller or faster, whatever it is. Um, and I mean, if you're an engineer, what do you want to work on? An average bridge or the longest bridge in the world? Every engineer is clear on that question. They want to work on the longest bridge in the world. I would do that too, you know, if I had the choice. Uh, I think any human being can understand that. Uh, and, and that's the sublime of doing something technologically uh, unique and exciting. And you get that opportunity a lot in mega products. They really push the technological envelope uh, in all sorts of ways, all the time. So we have the longest bridge in the world every few years. We have the tallest building in the world every few decades and so on. So there, there's lots of opportunity uh, uh, for doing this and, and and engineers love it. So that's that's a second driver. In addition to the politicians really liking products like this, engineers love them too and are so happy to propose them and to work on. 
The third sublime is the economic sublime. So uh, the definition of a mega project is anything north of a billion dollars. And, and very often they are multi-billion dollar projects, 10, 20, uh, even hundreds of billions if you're talking about military projects like, uh, like some of the uh, uh, air fighters that the, the defense is building in, both in the US and across the world, uh, like the Joint Strike fighter plane. And uh, this means that there's enough money for everybody to go around. So first of all, the consultants are very well paid. They're, they're very big consulting contracts. There are huge contracts, obviously, for construction. There's huge contracts for landowners. Very often, these projects are very land-consuming, so they need to buy land. And, and uh, this could be huge opportunities for, for landowners. If you're talking about rail projects, there are lots of opportunities to develop areas around and above stations. Uh, and again, that is uh, that is uh, real estate um, uh, becoming more valuable, an economic thing. Uh, and uh, even if you look at it from a labor union point of view, unions love mega products because they create jobs against something economic. So you have uh, you have actually um, you have um, groups that often are adverse to each other, like unions and employers. Uh, sometimes are in the labor market. They actually join forces here when it comes to mega products and say, yes, we like them. We want more because there's so much money in it. It's good for everybody uh, from an economic point of view, uh, at least uh, if we're talking about the construction phase, that's the way it's perceived. So that's the economic sublime. And then finally, there's the aesthetic sublime, uh, which is probably less powerful than the first three, but nevertheless actually plays a, a role sometimes. So, the aesthetic sublime is best illustrated by something like the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It's world famous for its aesthetics. And who does not like to walk across the Golden Gate or to drive across the Golden Gate? I certainly love it. And so does millions of other people around the world and in the U.S. Um, and and, and, and uh, so if people can build something that big and make it beautiful at the same time, you know, they would really like to do that. Uh, the aesthetic sublime uh, played out uh, with the with the, the Bay Bridge between San Francisco and Oakland, in the sense that uh, you know the earthquake damaged the bridge and it had to be retrofitted, as they called it. And at first, you know, they just wanted a, a, a you know a bridge going from point A to point B. That's a very functional thing, and uh, and and that's what that's what was proposed. Then somebody said, you know, we can't build something that pedestrian. You know, uh, right next to the Golden Gate, you can yeah. actually see the two bridges from yeah. many places in the Bay Area. Yeah. We cannot build this ugly duckling, you know, next to the Golden Gate. We need something that is aesthetically as pleasing as the Golden Gate. Let's aim for that. And then they started to redevelop the product. And it, of course, turned out that it became much more expensive because of this, uh, as you would expect. But that's an example of the aesthetic sublime at work. And you see that in, 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 in many projects that are highly visible, like bridges and skyscrapers and so on, that there's also a drive to make it beautiful. And, 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 uh, and uh, many people see that uh, as a benefit. Again, I certainly do. If I'm going to have a mega project, I'd rather have a beautiful one than an ugly one. Um, and uh, and that's, that's, your that's, that's your fourth uh, sublime and, 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 and the driver for mega projects. And if you take them all together, you actually find that the, that these are strong drivers that 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 uh, all together uh, uh, have us see uh, more and more proposals for for more and bigger uh, mega projects. 
So in a lot of these projects, um, okay, the costs are overestimated a little bit, or underestimated, excuse me, and they end up being bigger than people thought. Let's talk about the benefit side for a minute. A lot of times in these public projects, economists are brought in to tell you how many um, dollars are going to be earned from all the visitors to this new museum or because of the Olympics or because of the time save. There'll be all these travelers on these uh, trolleys or light rails or whatever it is. And in all these cases, they almost always tend to be uh, wrong. Uh is that your experience as well? We, we've talked mostly about the cost side, but you also said the benefit side is frequently uh, overestimated. Uh, yeah. what, what's going on there? Yeah, um, the estimates are optimistic. And for whatever, you, we can discuss the reasons for this later. But right now, we can just, uh, as, a, as an empirical fact, you know, I can tell you that uh, estimates uh, of benefits are optimistic. Just to give you an example, for rail projects around the world on average, Rail forecasters estimate uh, twice as many passengers as actually show up. So 100% forecasting error and year in, year out with no improvement. And we understand we understand the political incentives for that, right? You, you want to hire, if, like you said, because you're a politician, you want to get the tunnel built or the rail line built or the commuter train built. You're going to naturally uh, point to this, you're naturally going to hire firms that are going to be aggressive in how they estimate the the people who travel. What's interesting to me is that uh, it seems like, I'm going to emphasize, seems like the taxpayers get fooled every time. They say, well, this is going to be great because the study showed such and such. The study showed that the benefits are going to be huge. I do see a little bit of a backlash. Um, most cities are starting, most, excuse me, not most cities, most citizens in cities seem to have caught on that the Olympics is maybe not such a uh, a great prize to win. Uh, for example, in Boston, I think it's going to have to go up to a referendum, and I have a feeling it's going to struggle to get there. And one of the reasons it's going to struggle is that the politicians are not going to be the only people waving around the numbers. There will be advocates on the other side saying this is a waste of time, and these numbers are almost always wrong. Uh, is there any improvement possibly moving on there, going on there? I think that that is happening now with the Olympics, and and that's one of the things that I'm very happy about about the study that we put out in 2012 about the Olympics that is being used to inform the debates now. Before you could, there was there was no study showing systematically across the Olympics uh, what they had caused, what they were said to uh, uh, they would cost, and what they actually caused. So estimated than actual costs uh, until we did this study uh, in a systematic fashion and. And it's being used in Boston. Uh, I've been in contact with uh, the media in Boston and being interviewed about that. And I know the study is being used there. Norway, same thing. They have the same skepticism regarding putting on the Winter Olympics in Norway again. It already happened in Switzerland and Poland, same thing. So there, there are several countries around the world that is beginning to use the, uh, the studies like that. And, and I do think that that's the only way to get improvement is that actually citizens uh, take these studies and they start questioning the the decision makers, the, the politicians and other policy makers when they want to put on these big, uh, expensive things. And of course, if a city decides that he wants to do this, that's fine. You know, if everybody agrees, we're going to we're going to host uh, the Olympics or whatever, and we're willing to pay the cost. That's fine. That's the way democracy is supposed to work. But if if the decision is made because people are misinformed about the cost and it turns out to cost twice or three times, what people were told, that's not an informed decision. That's a misinformed decision, and that's not the way democracy is supposed to work. So a lot of people right now are arguing that because interest rates are low in the United States, 
this is a good time for mega projects. Um, and let me ask this question in maybe a little bit of a strange way. So if you ask those people, what you know, what should we be doing? Okay, so so it's true that the finance costs are low. That doesn't mean that the that the benefits outweigh the cost for any particular project. So just because interest rates are low doesn't mean we should put a human being on Mars. It doesn't mean we should try to say build a, a super fast rail system in California. It's true that for any cost, the borrowing part of it will be lower than it otherwise would be. But it doesn't make the projects. Uh, valuable in and of themselves, and I think the response would be to the to that point is, yeah, that's true. So you should only do projects that are good. And let's make a list, okay? We'll make a list of the top ten projects that the United States should be doing right now. What you're suggesting, in a way, is that at least nine of those ten will turn out to be not good. Aren't there surely some mega projects that are out there that? How could it be? Surely there's some big things that could be done publicly. I'm, again, I'm talking about public projects here that would be good, and they just uh, they're not being done for political reasons or because uh, people have been afraid of the of the interest cost. Now that interest rates are low, it's inexpensive to borrow. Shouldn't we be doing these now? Um, well, the the question about borrowing is like you said, is only if you are if you if if you are, if you're financing the mega projects by borrowed money uh, and therefore incur debts, then of obviously you will save money by doing it when the interest rate is low. So yes, that would be an argument for doing projects like that when interest rates are low. All other things being equal, and actually the the uh, the benefit cost ratio would be better for projects like that. If you're not using borrowed money, it doesn't matter uh, what the interest rate is uh, in terms of financing costs. Uh, um, and so that's a different question. Now, like if you're the public sector and you are taking the money out of the public budget, then it's not borrowed money. If you're the public sector and you borrow the money, then again, it would be an argument for doing it when, when, when interest uh, rates are low. Your second question, whether there are projects that are worth doing, certainly there are projects that are worth doing. And and it would only be if if uh, the business cases for the 10 projects you were talking about were made in the conventional manner, then nine out of 10 wouldn't, uh, then nine out of 10 would be problematic and one out of 10 would be, uh, would be okay in terms of, of cost overrun, for instance. Uh, um, uh, but you don't have to do it in the conventional manner. That's that's my first answer. You could you could actually go out and evaluate project in a much more realistic way instead of this completely unrealistic way that is is generally used, where you overestimate the benefits and underestimate the costs. You don't have to do that. We have developed methods here at Oxford University, and other colleagues around the world have developed methods that actually makes it possible to develop much more realistic business cases. We have developed. We have even developed debiasing tools, as we call them, where you can take a conventional business case and then you can put it through our debiasing methodology mm. and it comes out realistic at the other end, you know, <laughs> which is a pretty amazing thing and a lot of fun to Magic. do. And see the difference, between, the difference between the original business case and the debiased business case. But even, even with a with conventional way uh, of doing it, there is this one project out of 10 that is okay, and, and we find them around the world. So we, we know lots of examples of projects that were worth doing. So, so you have uh, 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 some of the first high-speed rail lines in France were actually uh, uh, fine in this manner, pretty much built to budget and, and delivered the promised benefits. Um, there's uh, 
urban rail projects in Germany uh, that uh, way have over, uh, you know, have, have delivered much better than, uh, is, than, than expected. In Denmark, we have the, what was the longest suspension bridge in the world uh, when it was completed. It's doing much better. It's generating uh, more than twice the revenues that was expected. So the benefits are much higher. And it's like a cash cow sitting right in the middle of the country generating huge sums of money. My favorite example is probably probably Bilbao in Spain, the way that the city government of Bilbao decided to regenerate this old industrial rust-built town with a steel industry and shipyards and so on, completely going down the drain, you know, economically speaking, and then decides to build the Guggenheim Museum designed by Frank Gehry, American architect, uh, which is a miracle, you know, aesthetically in many people's view, including myself. And, uh, and, and supporting that with like, uh, you know, 10, 20 other projects, including a subway, a, a new airport terminal, pedestrian bridges, and cultural districts, and all lots, lots of, all sorts of other stuff. And, um, and, and pretty much doing it on, on budget and on time and generating revenues that are two to three times higher than what they expected. And really, uh, uh, putting Bilbao on the world map regarding, uh, uh, you know, arts and, uh, and uh, 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 tourist destination where people have to go uh, to see interesting things and experience, experience an interesting urban environment. So I can, I, can, I can list lots of projects like this. They do exist. There are lots of projects that are worth doing, which to me makes it even worse than all these bad projects that are done, you know, that they are done it, it, because there are so many worthy uh, courses out there that could use the money in a much more productive way for everybody, except maybe the builders and, and landowners and consultants and so on. So let me uh, let me try to ask my question in a different way. That was really interesting, it's, but I didn't get it what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to think about. Okay, given given the the proportion of failures, uh, which is much greater than nine out of ten. It's nine out of ten, as you point out, any one dimension, yeah. cost, benefit, timing. So, given the proportion of failures, there's there are kind of two things that that might you might think of. One is is that two explanations. One is that, well, really large projects generally aren't worth doing. There are very few um, opportunities to build a great dam or a great bridge. Most have already been built. The ones that are productive, we don't. Anything like that that comes along, we should just be extremely skeptical about it because it turns out most of them fail in terms of cost-benefit. The second way to think about it is, well, actually, there's lots of great mega projects that, that might get done. It's just that the political process doesn't choose those. It chooses these other ones. You want to try to think about what, of which of those two hypotheses might be more uh, uh, compelling? I think they're both compelling. So I do think that the political process is incentivized in a manner that ends up choosing the wrong process, projects. I also believe that for some projects, like dams is an example that you mentioned, and maybe energy projects in, in general. So often dams are actually hydroelectric dams and therefore energy projects in, in addition to being water projects, water management projects. If you can deliver things in smaller units, our data indicate that you're much better off, that your risks of uh, of uh, losing money and uh, your risk of not delivering the promised benefits are much smaller if you do things in smaller units. So if you can go small uh, or smaller, it doesn't necessarily have to be totally small, but if you can go smaller 
um, that's probably better than going larger. So Norway is an example of a country that has taken that to heart. They basically stopped building large dams, are now instead building lots of smaller dams, and they find that that is better for the environment. And, and uh, you know, they actually produce 98% of their electricity by water, so they're completely sustainable. 98% for the whole nation of all their power is produced uh, uh, by water, uh, by old large dam and newer, newer smaller dams. So that's an example of that. But obviously, there's limits to that. You can't you can't build a bridge in small uh, increments <laughs> if you're going to build a, no. a the Marx the Marx uh, Brothers can. But I, uh, that's uh, not at the opera reference. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. So there is an example of that. But if if you are like the responsible politician for building a bridge across the Bosporus in in Istanbul, you know is. You know, if you if you have an advisor who says that uh, you know, do it in small increments, you might want to get another advisor. You know, uh, um, I mean, you can build it in small increments away from the construction sites, uh, industrial productions, and so on, and maybe save money doing that. But in the end, you have to put it all together, and the bridges, as long as it is, you know, you can you can substitute it by by ten smaller bridges. So. For some projects, there's no way around big, but for other projects, there is. When there is a way around, generally, that's preferable. Then there's then there's the additional thing, like, what if, you know, um, a nation or a city decides, heck, we don't care, you know, whether it costs more. We don't care if we're going to lose money on it. We do want the world's largest building, the world's <laughs> tallest building, sorry. Or we do want the world's longest bridge uh, should they be allowed to do it? Of course, there's nobody who can say they shouldn't. If, if, if democratically or whatever their decision-making system is, they decide that this is the this is what they want, and it and it's it's generally supported. Then uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, it's completely le- legitimate to do it. Uh, but it's not what we see. What we see generally is 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 uh, the first thing you said is that the political process is um, rigged in a way where where ineffective projects actually uh, gets decided and built, there's a whole incentive structure that things end up end up wrong. Well, it's a classic example of what we call uh, a, a term we often use on this program, the bootlegger and Baptist problem. So the bootleggers are the people who, they like banning liquor sales on Sunday because then people will buy from them, the, the illegal sellers. The Baptists like it because they think it's wrong. God doesn't want you to drink on Sunday. So you have an alliance between people who have a self-interested motive and the people who have a more high-minded motive. So it, my favorite example in the United States is, you know, there, some city is going to bid on bringing a sports team. Well, the main beneficiaries of the sports team are the, the owners and the, the fan, the owner and the fans. And, and it's a small group, but they don't sell it that way. Of course, they sell it by saying, well, it's really important that the city be considered a major league city. So it, it's important. And I'm thinking, well, it's a nice idea, but to make the poor people pay for it in the form of higher taxes just doesn't seem like necessarily such a good idea. Um, I, and that, that, that has been studied uh, also, and it is not a good idea. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, it's going to uh, be for some people, and they seem to think it's a great idea. But yeah, mm-hmm. overall, it does, they're not very good. Um, Let's talk about debiasing. I, I was talking to some friends from St. Louis recently. I lived there for 14 years, and I lived in the part of the city called near the Loop. And it's called the Loop because it used to have a trolley there. And I was d- sad to hear that St. Louis is building another – is going to rebuild the trolley there. 
Uh, and my friends knew I wouldn't like that, so they were, they were telling me about it. And I said, well, I'm sure it'll be crowded all the time because it probably won't be. It's a certain – there's a, as you say, it's an aesthetic sublime there. There's a certain romance about bringing the trolley back. And, of course, there's another factor, which is the people who use the trolley are not going to be the ones paying for it. It's probably going to be fairly uh, subsidized by either state money or federal money. It's usually how these projects – and that's another factor, obviously, that, that uh, affects the – these decisions to build to build these projects. But what I'm curious about is your debiasing uh trick. So it sounds like magic. You put the you put the cloak over the project and you rustle under it a little bit and you do say some magic words and then suddenly it shrunk to half its size when you pull the cloak away. Um do you just simply in this case I would just say, okay, whatever you are predicting for the ridership of the trolley to be, cut it in half and you'll probably be in the ballpark. Uh, what other methods are, do you use in your debiasing uh, techniques? Well, <laughs> I think that the way you describe it is is very charming, but uh, also far from the truth. It's not a trick. It's based on Nobel Prize winning uh, theories uh, and developed by Daniel Kahneman, uh, professor at Princeton University, and he's the he's sort of the godfather of what's called behavioral economics, which is uh, revolutionist in economic thinking which is now also revolutionizing management thinking. And those are the theories that we build our debiasing uh, methods uh, on. So it's very, very solid uh, theoretically. Uh, nevertheless, you know, uh, it is quite simple when you think about it. What we do is that we uh, just look at uh, previous projects of the same kind as the one that is being planned now. And we just look what was the actual performance of those. And you're right, if the actual performance was... As is a fact, you know, that only half the passengers for a given rail line on average show up on that rail line, meaning you lost the other half. They were just like a fiction of the forecasters. Then we actually adjust the forecast down by 50 percent. Um, so uh, so that's that's as simple as it is on, on the passenger side. We do the same on the on the cost side. We do the same on the schedule side. Whichever variable needs to be de-biased, we look at it. And we look at simple track record. We don't look at what people project into the future because we know from experience that's highly unreliable. And uh, and the theories say that you get a much more accurate forecast if you simply look at the track record for that particular type of project and you assume that the next project is going to perform like the average of the previous projects unless you have a very specific and very strong reason to think uh, that it's not going to perform like previous projects. Like if you're bringing in the world leaders to manage it or so, or somebody who had a proven track record that they actually was right on target with every forecast they made, you know, the last 10, 20 forecasts, and therefore you have a reason to believe that they are accurate. Then you would not de-bias them like that because they've already done it themselves and you would be double de-biasing, right? That would be an error. But otherwise, it's that simple. You, you just use past experience and you adjust the forecast by that. Well, yeah, I'm a little bit, Skeptical about experts, so I'm not going to, again, without naming names, uh, I know that some rail and transportation forecasts were done by Nobel Prize winners in economics doing using Nobel Prize winning techniques that were cutting edge, state of the art, best, et cetera. And they were, of course, off by large amounts. Um, I assume I would assume that in every one of these projects, when you were pointing out these issues, they would say, oh, but this is, they'd always say, well, th this one's different, don't they? 
Yeah, <laughs> they, they do. I mean, they do. And they used to be able to get away with that because there were no statistics to prove that uh, the, the pervasiveness of the pattern that we're talking about. So uh, um, project owners and project managers, uh, project planners would say, well, sorry, we were just unlucky this time. Next time we'll get it right. Now we know that's not true, that, that uh, the likelihood that they will not get it right is so high that we just can't count on it. We have to do something different. And, but you're right. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that anybody who wants to cheat on this can cheat on this. I could cheat on this if I wanted to. You know, it's, it's so complex that it's very easy to manipulate the forecast a little here, adjust them a little there, and you can get the number that you want. That's the truth of this kind of forecasting, and that's how it's done. If, however, you, do, you, you use these uh, debiasing techniques that I'm talking about, which are completely transparent, it's much easier to... Uh, to understand, uh, even by lay people, than, than, than the complex forecasting methods that are used these days, you have a better chance of actually getting people to understand what's going on. So if you're talking about the, the, the trolley in St. Louis, and I would just, in my database, I could find uh, 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 25 or 50 similar projects from around the U.S. and around the world and I would say, I would say, this is the way they performed, uh, Ross. And on average, this is what happens. Uh, and you see that this is what they think is going to happen in St. Louis. So if St. Louis is completely off the chart, you know, compared to usual behavior, you should smell a rat there, you know, and you know something is fishy. That that's what what you. That's the first thing these methods do. And then second, of course, then you can, when you know it's fishy, you can adjust it because you actually have the data from all these other projects, and you know exactly what happened. But as I said, if you're not paying for it, you still might push politically to do it anyway if you can get someone else to pay for it. That's true. That's true. Uh, what is Hirschman's hiding hand argument? Hirschman, uh, first of all, Hirschman uh, was a famous economist uh, who happened to be working at Princeton like Kahneman at the Institute for Advanced Study, also at Harvard before that. He originally came from Germany. He developed a theory called the hiding hand theory um, or the hiding hand principle, as he called it, which states that uh, we'll all be okay, you know, uh, <laughs> that um, we should just start, go ahead and start projects because there's a hiding hand that is hiding our own problem-solving ability from us. It's hiding the real cost of the project. So we think it's going to be cheaper than it actually is. And that's actually good according to the hiding hand principle because it gets us tricked into starting projects that we wouldn't otherwise have started. But not to worry, says Hirschman and his hiding hand, because when, when uh, the troubles begin, you know, when you realize that your body is not right, we human beings are very good at solving unexpected problems and we'll deal with it. That's, that's the way we are and, and we'll solve it and we'll make the project successful. That's the theory. It's an appalling argument, actually. I, I find it kind of shocking that it was put forward at all. And you say there was some discomfort about it or what you call it, tongue-in-cheekness to it or, right? And the idea that, oh, yeah, it's a horrible idea. Uh, it's going to cost you a ton of money. But, you know, when it's over, you'll be glad you did it and you'll you'll do the best you can. And otherwise, you wouldn't do it, right? That's the it, – it, it's about I, – I call it the myopic argument. It's saying, well, you know, I'm yeah. not going to look too carefully at the estimates because then I'd be discouraged. And ignoring the possibility that maybe you should be discouraged most of the time on some of these, right? Yeah, but but you know, I mean, you have people stating this. It's it's, it's rare that you get it very clearly and, and in public. But but there's a recent example of that. The former mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown, 
former uh, California State Assembly member, uh, he said that we should consider the first est- estimate or the first budget just a down payment. And, and he says everybody knows that. We shouldn't be hung up about that when, when the costs overrun start to come in. Um, that's that's not a, a problem, you know, uh, because uh, the low budget is actually useful. The thing is, we need to start digging. We need these projects, and therefore, we should have a reason to start digging. And the low budgets help us do that. Uh, so he's on record saying that for for the Trans Bay Terminal project in San Francisco, which is a multi-billion uh, transit and uh, de- and real estate development project, and he said the same for the for the uh, San Francisco Oakland Bay Bridge, uh, same thing. Uh, I have so, the I have the quote here. I'm going to read it because it, it is special. It, he was quoted. Uh, I've got this from your your paper. It's he was quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle. Here's what he said: News that the Trans Bay Terminal is something like 300 million over budget should not come as a shock to anyone. We always knew the initial estimate was way under the real cost. Just like we never had a real cost for the subway or the Oakland Bay, the San Francisco Oakland Bay Bridge or any other massive construction project. So get off it. In the world of civic projects, the first budget, it's really just a down payment. If people knew the real cost from the start, nothing would ever be approved. The idea is to get going, start digging a hole, make it so big there's no alternative to coming up with the money to fill it in. Uh, close quote. That's a really remarkable statement. Um and it of course, is, that, that's that's the core of the hiding hand uh, principle, right there. So let me, uh, even though I made fun of it, let me defend the hiding hand for a minute. So there were many, many projects that were built long ago that may have been uh, disasters uh, for cost benefit uh, and quote mistakes as a, as a result. But you know, I'm kind of glad they're here. So let, let let's take some examples. I'm glad New York has a subway system. I'm glad I love the Golden Gate Bridge. I love the Brooklyn Bridge. I suppose the Panama Canal is a good thing. These are all examples I think you mentioned of at least some of them are were, you know, big cost overruns. Um, maybe the Sydney Opera House is, you know, gorgeous, extraordinary building. Um, aren't these, which had huge cost overruns, unbelievable, aren't these, once they're done, aren't we glad? Isn't this, isn't it for the best? Isn't it great that, I mean, you would have, if 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 Bent Flupia was around at the time, he would have said, "You're making a big mistake." And then look, now we've got these things, says Willie Brown, and they're great. Can can I just uh, ask you to name me another building by the architect of the Sydney Opera House? Well, I've read your paper, so I know there isn't one. So talk about that. Yeah, it's a fascinating example. So uh, of course, the Australians are happy about the Sydney Opera House, and they actually. Uh, the general consensus around the world is that it's the greatest building of the 20th century. Um, certainly, probably the most viewed. Uh, it's the youngest uh, uh, building that, that that has got United Nations uh, heritage uh, status and so on and so forth. So it's really spectacular. At the same time, the architect who did this building has not done any other major building in the world because of the mismanagement of the Sydney Opera House, because it was done by uh, the conventional uh, formula for developing projects, like lowballing the budget uh, uh, up front and then, uh, you know, asking for uh, forgiveness instead of permission, which is exactly what happened. Uh, the cost overrun was 1,400%. And as always, when cost overruns happened, the architect was blamed and his work situation became so... Um, uncomfortable, he found that he actually left the project in the middle. 
uh, uh, and uh, with his family and flew out of Australia, never to return. He never returned. He never saw the building finished. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, that's the cost of the Sydney Opera House to me, is that because he left the building, he got such a bad reputation, both in Australia and outside of Australia, that he never got to design another major building. For decades, the tour guides on the Sydney Opera House were not allowed to mention his name that's how much, uh, you know, unfriendliness there was between uh, the Australians and the architect on this project. And it destroyed his career, as I said. That means that we don't have any other buildings. It's equivalent to taking Frank Gehry, who's considered the world's most famous architect by now and who's considered to be in the same league as, as Woodson regarding uh, doing magic uh, aesthetics and magic buildings. So look at his, you know... Uh, 50, 100 uh, major buildings around the world. You can choose one. You have to erase the rest. That's the cost of the Sydney Opera House. It was not a success. It was a huge failure in those terms. Okay, so that's one example. But in general, again, trying to give the hiding hand argument its uh, or myopia argument its best, its best case, uh, Willie, Willie Brown is on to something in principle. I think in reality, where he's deceptive is that he likes to build, dig holes where his friends are because he's a politician. He's not going to necessarily dig the best hole or the, the hole that's the right size or the hole in the right place. And so the I think it's, it's around $5 billion, the, the Transbay Terminal Project. It looks kind of nice on paper. It might be a, something of a success. It'll certainly be a success for the people who pour the concrete. Uh, and so it'll probably be a success in some dimension. But when it's, when it's over, let's say it's beautiful – and, uh, okay, so it costs more than it was worth. But aren't we glad we have it? That would be the claim. Aren't of, we? Course, of, of course you're glad we have it. And, and uh, I'm glad, for instance, that the, that the Channel Tunnel is here. When I go to Brussels or Paris, I just get on the high-speed train and ship. I'm right there and I can work very comfortably, much better than airplanes, you know. And it's very hard to believe when you're on that service that it's a huge failure financially. Uh, you don't – something can be a technological success and a financial failure, of course – and of course, if you're not the person or persons paying financially, you'll be happy about the project and you're glad that it's there. But you should ask the, uh, the banks and the, share, the original shareholders of the, of the tunnel and these other projects that you're talking about. You should ask the people who actually got to pay uh, for the projects and got to pay the extra sums, whether they are happy about it. Of course, later generations are happy about a project because they get it for free, right? Why would you not be happy about something that you get for free? That's not the relevant question. In that way, you can justify anything. You need to go back to the decision point moment and, and ask yourself whether it was a rational decision at that point or not and ask yourself who gains, who loses, and, and is, it a, is it a right decision from that point of view? So what are the prospects for improvement um you were identified i assume and based on what you've said people understand that you're the skeptic that uh you're the guy that that is the realist you're the uh, in a way you play the role of the uh, of the economist just like saying this isn't free right this isn't a, this isn't the bargain it looks like watch out um that's nice it's interesting for our listeners to hear Give me some idea of how your work, if at all, has has had an impact on some of these uh, projects and how they are estimated and, and decisions are made. 
Yep. Um, so fortunately, there there's actually a lot of demand and increasing demand for realists in this field because it's now becoming so expensive. So much money is going into this field that people are beginning to realize that it's not a good idea to do it in the wasteful way that we have been doing it when it goes to the scale that we are now at globally. We're talking about somewhere between 6 and 9% of global GDP going to these types of projects uh, these days. So it's a huge business. And even if you could uh, save, you know, 5% in efficiencies, it would be huge numbers around the world. And you can easily, in my view. So governments are actually beginning to realize that private companies are beginning to realize that banks who have got burns on financing projects that turned out to be financially non-viable are very interested in this. So, so they, they hire people like me, you know, to get a more realistic view. Right now, we are training here at Oxford University all the top civil servants in the UK government who are responsible for the major projects in, in the UK, several hundred top civil servants from, from uh, permanent secretaries and a couple of layers down. And uh, that's an indication of demand from a whole government who decides we, we don't want to waste the taxpayers' money uh, like this, we actually want to do it in a different way. Let's get, um, you know, let's get some training in how we do that. So in the future, no UK government official will be allowed to lead uh, and manage a major project without having gone through what we call the Major Projects Leadership Academy at Oxford University, which is a one-year training program. Um, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, South Africa, other countries are, are looking to these uh, improvements with great interest and have already implemented uh, aspects of this. So, so uh, there really is demand. Also on the citizen side, we talked earlier about how uh, people are using the new information about uh, Olympic costs to discuss, to debate whether they actually want to put them on, you know, whether they actually want to foot the bill and the risk, the financial risk that you take on when you host the Olympics. Uh, and this has now have uh, repercussions. The IOC, I know that the IOC is now working internally to uh, improve things so that uh, the Olympics do not have to be as costly. So the overalls do not have to be as big. They really try, they, they really see this now. They see that it as a problem that not enough countries and cities will actually want to be hosts and therefore they need to improve things. So mechanisms like that are starting to kick in into place and, uh, and in addition, there, there really is demand for the more realistic approach. That doesn't mean I'm not, I'm not, I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist. So I don't see the whole field changing overnight into something different. They have very strong interest in the old business model. And it is a business model. It is a way of making huge amounts of money for certain groups of people. Um, and of course, uh, when things are like that, these people are not going to give this up easily or voluntarily. So this is going to be a fight between old ways and new ways, like happens so often, you know, uh, in many fields and many businesses. And that's the name of the game when you're innovating things, I think. Well, your observations about the Olympics really help illustrate the hiding hand arguments uh, danger. Because you might say, well, if, if no one hosts the Olympics, then we won't have the Olympics. And the Olympics are so entertaining. They're so inspiring. Let's suppose they're not financially viable, but they're so great. And the answer is, well... There's a way to stage them probably that isn't quite as grandiose <laughs> as as they've been staged in the past and would still provide much of the uh, the pleasure that people get from them uh, around the world uh, to the extent they do. And I don't know, I don't want to overestimate that. I want to I want to close with a little bit of my own romance um, and get your reaction to it. 
So I, I understand I, deeply the aesthetic sublime that you talked about and the human striving for something that's never been done before, the, the technological issue, the technological sublime. The project in the United States right now that, that captures my imagination is the Hudson Yards project. So what they've done there, what they're trying to do there is they're covering a massive rail yard with a platform and then somehow building an enormous number of buildings on top of that, skyscrapers on top of that platform so that the rail yard will still be there, which spans many, many square blocks. And yet they'll have essentially added land to uh, the island of Manhattan by covering this rail yard and building on top of it. And it's it's incredibly ambitious. It's a 20, I think, $20 billion project. And I'd like to say it's private. It, it's somewhat private, at least. I, I, you know, of course, the city is intimately involved in in real estate. So that kind of project, you know, I, I, it's a wonderful thing that human beings try to do that. It's um, it's it's inspiring. It's creative. It's part of the uh, the human spirit. Uh, and as long as somebody else is paying for it, I'm all for it. Uh, and I hope they make a lot of money. I hope it's a great project as long as they're not getting too many subsidies from the city of New York. But there are a lot of private projects like that that I assume uh, – I'm interested in to see how your study comes out because I would think many more of those would do better. And I just I just suspect – than the public ones, I just suspect that maybe their private examples uh, server farms, say, in, in the west of the United States, you just don't see. They work great and you don't have to – you don't get the data on those. But when, why don't we close by talking, if you know anything about any of that? So um, I agree with you that uh, the taxpayers should feel more relaxed, you know, when things are done in the private sector. Maybe the shareholders shouldn't feel as relaxed. They should then pay <laughs> attention to what the companies are doing. I think that that would be my advice, you know. Absolutely. And that's, the, I, that's what I would do. I mean, taking the channel tunnel as an example again, uh, one of my friends suggested that we buy share in it, you know, when it was put up for the IPO, the initial public offering. And 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 given my knowledge about mega products, I I just said no, I'm not yeah. going to. I'm really happy that I didn't, you know, because yeah, it, good one. It, it it went insolvent and and the and the shareholders lost their money basically. Uh, so that that's what you need to pay attention to as a shareholder. So it's not like people can relax just because it's in the private sector. The taxpayer can relax if the contracts are written right, because there actually is a very um, unfortunate tendency for things ending up uh, with the taxpayer anyway, you know, even if everybody thought yeah. it was in the private sector. Correct. Then there's, some, <laughs> there's some escape uh, clause, you know, uh, somewhere in the contract saying, well, by the way, the public sector is picking up the risk if everything goes wrong. Uh, that happens too often for comfort. Now, the you did mention uh, very early on in the conversation the handful of of projects that, that, uh, that were public and that were seem to have been effective. Bilbao was one example you gave, um, and you gave a few others. I, I, I forget in the paper whether you found this or not, but did you, you looked for things that they might have in common, those successes, right? You'd, you'd want to look for if there's anything we can learn from those successes, or were they just good luck? Were they just random? What did that, you find? That's, that's uh, another ongoing study that we're doing now. We, we're looking at the projects that were successes and we're trying to find out uh, were they just lucky or is there a method to their success? And, uh, and we, find, we find both, but, but there's enough projects where there's a method to the success and, and, uh, and then we try to learn uh, from those, you know. And, 
Um, one of the keys to success is, first of all, to have a really strong owner. So the people who own the project have to be really strong and know what they want. They have to have clear objectives. They have to have power and they have to have staying power. So they have to be in place for a long time. There's a problem that many of the projects we talk about here have a much longer life cycle than the political life cycle. So politicians are elected every fourth or five years, whichever country you're in, but the projects last five to 15 years. So that's not very well synchronized, you know. So somebody at the front of the project might think, hey, I'm going to decide this because I'm not going to be around, you know, when when see whether it's a good idea or not. I will get all the kudos and the benefits for and the, and the public uh, uh, exposure for being the person who made the decision. And I have the benefit of not being around when we're going to see whether it was a good decision or not. Uh, so you... That, that's a recipe for disaster. You actually need decision makers that are in place and have staying power. Then they need to hire people um, who have done it before. You know, if you're, put, if you're building a mega project or several mega projects, if you're doing the Atlantic Yards, you want somebody who has done an Atlantic Yard before. This sounds so self-evident. You will think that it's always, always uh, adhered to. It's not the case. You'd be surprised <laughs> to see how many project managers are doing projects that basically they haven't done before. So you are paying as the owner for an experiment where you're having somebody trying to do a project that they haven't done before. So those would be, those would be uh, two main things. Then, of course, also you would want to use the, um, the estimating techniques that will give you a realistic estimate, some, some of the tools that we have developed, or you would want to de-bias your business case if it's been done by conventional forecasters. So you actually have a realistic case like they did in Bilbao, they, they built the Guggenheim, for instance. You, you you won't believe it when you see the building because it, it looks like if anything was going to go over budget, it would be that building. If anything was going to go over schedule, it would be that building because it's so complex and innovative. And usually you say the two main causes for overruns and delays are uh, uh, innovation and complexity. But here it was built right on budget, actually a little bit below budget and, uh, and right on time. Uh, so it is possible. If you was, if you set if you set if you set things up the right way, was it built by a firm that had built a Gary building before? Um, some of the some of the contractors involved had built uh, Gary buildings before, but others were local. And this is actually one of the things. This is an, uh, according to Gary, one of the secrets to having success with his buildings is using local contractors. Really good local contractors is a good idea, according to Gary. Hmm. I wonder if that's. Uh, I wonder why. Maybe they'd be embarrassed to be uh, to, to have a big cost overrun and take too long. Their friends keep saying to them, "Hey, where's the building? You know, what's going on there?" Maybe I don't know. Uh, your other observation, if I remember the paper, is that it's hard to systematically compare these successes to the failures because there's so few of them. Your database just isn't big enough. That's true, and that's that's a kind of funny result that that we can't find enough successes to have a statistically valid database. We have a statistically valid database for projects on average and for failures, but we can't find enough successes to have a large enough database uh, to produce statistically valid uh, answers. That's okay. I mean, there are still methods that you can use in order to establish whether it's likely to be luck or not for the individual. Uh, for the individual uh, 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 client or the individual uh, builder. So, uh, Ben, you are from uh, Denmark originally. And for, yes. for listeners, I'm going to, 
to tell you that his last name is spelled F-L-Y-V-B-J-E-R-G. I think I got that right. But it's pronounced Flupia, and we will, of course, have links to uh, Ben's papers and uh, his webpage, so you don't have to worry about spelling it correctly. But my guest today has been Ben Flupia. Ben, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Pleasure, Ross. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.